welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond, and I'm joined, as always, from here on out, by my co-host Joseph Cacharo. Cash, media day has occurred. Teams are heading out for training camp. James Harden is ready to make things uncomfortable. Drew Holiday is a Boston Celtic. What's going on, man? I guess a lot uh, since we last spoke. And it's officially October, too, so it, now... Uh, it really is basketball season. I think I joked a couple of weeks ago that our first pod together after all the time off we each take in the summer is like the unofficial end of summer start of basketball season or whatever, but October truly is. And we're here. We've made it. It's October. Media days, like you said, have come and gone. Training camps are in full swing. Drew Holiday is a Boston Celtic. Pascal uh... Siakam is still a Toronto Raptor. We can talk about that a little later in the show. And James Harden is still a Philadelphia 76 or more importantly. So lots to talk about today, I guess. <laughs> I do think we're basically going to hone in on those three storylines because if we tried to cast a wider net than that, it would feel probably a little bit too chaotic. And we actually did have a separate set of topics for this episode that we're going to have to push back. Just given, I mean, I think the magnitude of the holiday trade for sure the Harden situation is what it is. Like, I think to me, a lot of this felt pretty predictable. Even if you go back and listen to my episode with Trill from a few weeks back, I feel like he especially just predicted all of this, like to a T. And the Siakam stuff with the Raptors has just been this, this weird shadow on the horizon that you wondered if it was ever going to clear up, if it was going to get resolved, and it just hasn't. We were both at Raptors Media Day on Monday, and I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts. I have a lot of thoughts about what that was like, uh, the vibes in the room. It was pretty strange. So, yeah, what of those three topics, where would you like to start today, Cash? Let's start with Drew and the Celtics, because that is the most um, relevant. Consequential. Yeah, it's the most consequential. It's, I think, the most relevant to you know, the basketball that will be played this season, at least on the top end. So I think that's a good place to start. And uh, the way I see it is like, look, we talked last week. I know you weren't quite as there as I was um, in terms of the Bucks being like, oh, absolutely the team to beat now with Dame. I know you had them more just in that top tier, whereas I was like, I think they're actually a little head and shoulders or head and one shoulder above the rest of the league. I thought this move, not that I like, not that the Celtics wouldn't have tried to continue to improve had the Bucks not gotten Damian Lillard, but I did think this move was a direct reply to Milwaukee's blockbuster move, and not just because the only reason Drew Holiday was available was because of the Bucks move, but just for a lot of reasons. I mean, one, so you think, let's say, not Holiday, but just another player around the league who is. An exact replica of Drew Holiday, but goes by a different name. That player shook loose. You're telling me the Celtics wouldn't have made this move if the Bucks hadn't done the Dame thing? I'm not sure they would have, and I'll, I'll I'll tell you why. One, I think the Celtics had gone to a point where the asset capital wasn't exactly bone dry. Obviously, they still had like their picks and stuff, but compared to what it had been in recent years, they had used a decent amount of the capital they had and they were starting to run out of assets to make like the big move while Tatum and Brown, or at least one of them was not on a a supermax yet. I think even though they've got those two guys most likely under team control for a long time, the window to actually make really big team building moves around them was starting to close just because of the way the the cap is the, you know, punitive luxury tax coming, all that. And so I think when you consider that and the fact that they then used some of their remaining assets, especially from a player perspective, like with Brogdon out the window and more importantly, Robert Williams out the window, like you look at this roster now and it's like, there's not a lot of depth. They're very top heavy. And if you don't want to trade Tatum and Brown, like this is kind of the team, like there's not a lot left to do. And so the way I looked at it was for a team that already had a more defensive-minded guard that, like, let's say a more defensive-minded, not quite your traditional offensive point guard. 
for a team that already had a guy like that to use some of those remaining assets on another defense. That, that being Derek White? Is yes. That, yeah. yeah. And I like Derek. I'm not, like, I'm not, that's not a knock on him offensively. I'm just saying he, like, he's not your prototypical offensive point guard. No. Right. And he's definitely a defense first guard, which is fine. The guy's an all defensive team member. Like, Derek White's great. What I'm saying is I don't think the Celtics would have used some of the assets they had left on another defensive first, non-traditional or like offensive point guard if their biggest intra-conference rival didn't just add Damian Free and Lillard. Well, I maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. But I think this move would have made all kinds of sense for them, whether the Bucks had made that trade or not, just because... And again, this is a, a completely hypothetical situation where there's another Drew Holiday in the league and the Bucks themselves didn't trade him in order to get Damian Lillard in the first place. But like when we were talking about the Porzingis trade a couple months back, I like I understood why they did it. I understood the need for a little bit more front court depth and some insurance there given Al Horford's age and Rob Williams's injury history. I understood the need to get a little bit more offensive dynamism there, given some of the problems they've run into in the past. I wasn't bowled over by it, but I sort of understood it. But I think the thing that really worried me about it from Boston's standpoint was, wow, this really leaves them perilously thin on guard depth. I mean, especially when you consider that Malcolm Brogdon's health is such a concern that his medicals kiboshed a trade you know, initially, like the Porzingis trade was supposed to include Brogdon, right? He was going to go to the Clippers, failed his physical, and so that trade fell through. So that's why I'm like, clearly, they needed to do something about their backcourt situation. And I think I just feel so much better. And like you mentioned, the top six, obviously, depth is going to be an issue. But I feel so much better about the roster balance and in terms of the top-end talent, how it's all going to fit together and how it's going to work, now that they have Drew Holiday in there. I don't think it's just about, hey, we need to get another defense-first guard in here because our main rivals in the East got you know one of the best offensive guards in the league. I think you know Holiday's offense is going to be just as important to Boston as his defense would have been. Maybe not just as important, but very, very important. And the, the particular ways that he is an upgrade on Smart offensively give me some confidence that maybe they can get over the hump that they haven't gotten over in the past few years. Yeah. Oh, we, sorry. we can I, talk I, about what the limitations still are there. Obviously this creates now a need or, or a, a concern elsewhere in terms of the front court depth. But you know, you, you, you talk about the, like their asset cupboard starting to run a little bit bare, but I, I actually feel kind of the opposite about it. Not like they're obviously like whittling it down. But if you look at the other teams that are serious contenders right now, the other teams that have quote unquote gone all in to win now, Boston still has more stuff to trade than those teams do. They still have a lot they of still have their own like, you know, they can trade 2024 yeah. and 2026 first. They got their swap rights to trade in 2025 and 2027. It's really just it's like the 2028 swap that they owe to San Antonio, right? For the Derek White trade. And now this 2029 first that they owe to Portland in the trade that got them Drew. So it's more, that's what I said. I understand that part of it. It's more from the player, like the player salary side of trying to swing another trade. That's where it's really been whittled away, right? Because again, unless it's one of Tatum or Brown, like in a crazy blockbuster, they don't exactly have like the most attractive uh, pieces. And that goes towards also just their depth. Like even if they're just talking about their own team, not wanting to make a move and, and going forward with this team, like, yeah, that top four five is great. You get past that. It's like, you know, it's, is Luke Cornett ready to step into the spotlight as the third big on a championship level team? Like does a bench consisting of Peyton Pritchard, Cornett, O'Shea Brissett, Delano Banton, Sam Hauser, Sound Don't like forget a, Svi, Svi Mihailuk. Yeah, does that like does that sound like a championship? Lamar Stevens, baby. Bench? It does not to me. And I get that that's a lot easier to address throughout the huh. season, you know, at the deadline, even the buyout market. But I, I'm not against it. I I like the move for them. I just think that 
you know, it's really left them very thin. And I know the counter to that as well. Like Robert Williams probably would have only played 40 games anyway, but that's kind of it, right? Would have played 40 games. I might rather have 40 games with Robert Williams than 70 of Luke Cornett, but I would not rather. That's not what we're talking about. Exactly. I would not rather have 40 games of Robert Williams as compared to having Drew Holiday in the lineup. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, I kind of thought, and I think Portland did very well here. I, I, this is a win-win to me, but I kind of thought it was a no-brainer for Boston. Like, in terms of having lost Smart and all the concerns that that gave me about what it would mean for them, frankly, at both ends of the floor, but as much offensively as defensively, man, I, I say this all the time. He was the, he, Smart was their best passer and like, like a very underrated pick-and-roll creator. And without him, I mean, we'd already seen them run into issues because of Tatum and especially Brown's limitations as playmakers. Like I, man, I was I was pretty concerned about the playmaking load that that was going to saddle those two guys with, and you know I I think it's fair to still have some concerns about the collective passing ability on this team and whether they might run into the same issues with offensive stasis in the postseason that they've had in the past. But at the very least, I mean Drew's like a very competent ball handler, a, a solid you know pick and roll playmaker. And at least during the regular season, a really good shooter. And I don't, you know, in terms of like the rhyme or reason behind his playoff struggle shooting the ball, I, I don't know exactly what to do with that. I do think at some points, like two postseasons ago when Middleton wasn't there, that's an easy, like he's carrying too much. Like he's not a lead guard <clears throat> offensively. So if you're looking at it from that perspective, I, I don't think that'll be an issue. Like you have Tatum and Brown there to siphon away a lot of defensive attention. You know, he's not going to be seeing particularly difficult defensive matchups. And a, a lot of the time is just going to have the burden of creation, you know, relieved or shared at least with two other guys who maybe not the best playmakers for others, but like can create their own shot with the best of them. So I, I, I think I'd be surprised if we saw another sub 50% true shooting postseason from Drew Holiday this year. Fair. I mean, the Celtics should hope he is, but I'll also say if you look at what he did in the regular season last year and what Derek White did in the regular season last year, low-key, if they just replicate their 2020, like come close to replicating their 2022-23 regular season shooting numbers, the Celtics, in addition to having the best defensive backcourt in basketball, low-key have one of the better shooting uh, backcourts in basketball. And I get that, like, Maybe people would be shocked to hear that, but they combined for 307 three-pointers while combining to shoot over 38% from deep. I think they were both over 38% from deep. Like, again, if they just come close to that, combined for about 300 38-ish percent from deep, that is literally going to be one of the best shooting backcourts in basketball on a team that, again, probably, does probably not the require... Best front court shoot, <laughs> like, best shooting front court in basketball, too. Exactly, yeah. Like, on a team that doesn't require them to have to create much for themselves. Like... Tatum and the, the combined offensive abilities of Tatum and Brown, specifically when it comes to shot creation for themselves, make it so that like the point guard or, who, you know, whatever you want to call that position for the Celtics, they don't require as much traditional point guard offensive output out of those positions. And so they have the luxury of not needing that kind of guy. Um, and so to fill it, both guard spots with guys like White and Holiday, who sure, neither one of them could maybe fill that type of role traditional offensive point guard on a championship team, but can definitely give the Celtics what this team needs offensively while being the best defensive backcourt in basketball. I do think it's a great fit and a great move. And, you know, like whether you think it it was at all influenced by the Dame move or not, this does give the Celtics the luxury, just like obviously they had last year with Smart and White, but it now allows them again to ensure that when the games matter, they can guarantee if they want that at least one all defensive guard is on the court at all times. In an inev- you know potentially inevitable matchup with the Bucks, they can ensure that Damian Lillard cannot shake free at any point of the game of an all defensive type guard. Like you know that matters in a long season in a potentially long series against a team like Milwaukee. I at the very least think that the Celtics front office, just like Dame himself probably hasn't forgotten what Drew Holiday 
with help, obviously, did to Dame in the 2018 playoffs that Dame has spoken about uh, many times on, in various forms. I think it was on JJ Reddick's podcast a few years ago that Dame talked about that 2018 series and said, like, that's he already kind of knew it, but like, that's when he really realized Drew Holiday's the best defensive perimeter player in the game. So, yeah, I, th- I think um, it's, it's a no brainer for Boston, despite what it does to their depth and the front court depth and all that. Um, I think it's a move they had to make doubly so after Milwaukee traded for Dame. And I think it makes the matchup between Boston and Milwaukee that I hope we do get at some point all the more fascinating. Yeah, I'm really resisting the temptation to start breaking that matchup down because I feel like anytime this happens where it's like, oh, there's these two clear favorites in the conference, they're on a collision course. We're going to see this matchup in the playoffs. Let's start dissecting it. It just never comes to fruition. Like something like Miami will somehow find itself back in the conference finals or like the Knicks will wheedle their way in there somehow. I just, uh, we'll get there if or when we get there, but we don't have to start doing that now. I'll just say, I mean, I think, look, to me, there's a clear top tier of championship contenders now. And I think it is Denver, Boston, and Milwaukee. Phoenix to me is sort of in a tier by themselves just below that because I think in terms of the top end talent and the ceiling they can hit they're actually at that level and like I don't think any teams like under that top tier that that three team tier that I just laid out I, I don't think any teams outside of that can reach the heights that Phoenix potentially can but I think you know we're and we're talking about depth concerns with Boston I think it's like doubly so with Phoenix and, and without the defensive upside. that Correct. Correct. But po- probably with the higher offensive upside yeah. as well. Um, but I guess I just, you know, I, I think there's like too many what ifs and, and too many question marks overall for me to feel comfortable putting them quite on that same level. But I do think it's interesting looking at that, that four team group. It's kind of like they all sort of have the same issues in terms of like, oh, wow, the, like those are four incredible starting lineups. And then in every case after that, you're kind of scratching your head and wondering what it's going to look like. But it's really like those are the best starting fives in basketball without a doubt. And I don't know. What do you think? What's the best starting five out of that group? I think it's the Bucks. I Man, I just mm. as we talked about last episode, I think. What Dame brings to that team, the way he and Giannis will complement each other offensively, the fact that I still think with Giannis and Lopez on the court, like you should be able to at worst hold, like, you know, hold your own defensively and mask some of the issues that come with having Dame and maybe, you know, a loss to Step Middleton or whatever. I I just think they're the most balanced starting lineup. And Phoenix obviously like I, I don't think either one of us would say they're balanced if we're talking about both ends of the court. I mean, Boston's close, but well, what, this is another question. Like what is Boston starting five going to look like? Do you think, and maybe it won't be set in stone, you know, but like they have six potential starters. Basically. I think they go like Tatum at the four and go holiday Horford off the bench. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. At least to start, and then I think we'll see how the season develops. I, I, but I think at least to start, mm-hmm. listen, like I get that you, at the end of the day, you should be making the decision based on what you think your best lineup is, but there is a little part of it where it's like, you know, you did just trade Marcus Smart for Kristaps Porzingis. I think you're starting him at least to start the season. Oh, no, no, no. I have no doubt they're starting Porzingis. You mean it, where the they The question st- to me is whether is whether it's White or Horford coming off the bench. Right, and they, yeah. Because look, here's the th- like if they're leaning into defense, and this is going to seem like a strange thing to say because Derek White just made the all defensive team last year. In my mind, he was the best point of attack defender outside of Alex Caruso in all of basketball last year. But I think the best defensive version of this team might be having both big guys on the floor at the same time. Because I don't know if either Horford at age 37. Or Porzingis, just like he's a really good rim protector, but has other defensive limitations, especially rebounding. Like that's really the big one for me with him is like if he's playing center, you're going to have serious rebounding issues with Jason Tatum playing the four. So that's where I'm like, even though Derek White's a a magnificent perimeter defender, 
I, I think the best defensive version of this team is probably playing the two big guys. And I'm sure there'll be a lot of mix and matching and like, it's not going to be the same starting lineup the whole way through. Uh, it's nice that they have that option and that both of those lineups can, you know, theoretically work maybe in different ways. Um, I think it's also great that like they can lean into playing two bigs together and get the benefits of doing that, like in terms of their size and rim protection and hopefully rebounding, but they can, they can do that and still go five out offensively, <laughs> you know, like that's, that's kind of the beauty of this roster right now. They're really going to be able to space the floor and that's going to put a ton of pressure on teams just given the ISO scoring talent they have. Yeah, agreed. And I also agree. I think that the two big lineup works especially well in the matchup we're talking about against Milwaukee because Horford, I understand, you know, he's not the player he was two or three years ago just because age you know, takes its toll on everybody, yeah. but still he, a top five Giannis defender in basketball. Exactly, exactly what I was going to say. And like the last time they matched up in the playoffs, he was still doing a pretty damn good job on Giannis. So if you think of a potential Bucks Celtics matchup and the Celtics should feel as confident as a team can with putting someone on Giannis and putting Horford on him. Porzingis and Lopez, you know, uh, can match up. And then if you bring White off the bench, or if for whatever reason it's holiday, you bring off the bench, whatever, it gets back to that point I was saying where like they can ensure at least one of those guys is on the court, you know, barring foul, trouble, injury, whatever. But for the most part, should be able to ensure at least one of Holiday or White's on the court for the whole game. At least one of them is on the court when Dame is on the court. You've got the bigs matched up the way you want it. I I think the two big lineup. I works. told you I didn't want to do this. Catch. I know, and yet here we are. Because I think I really do think it's fascinating, man. And I get what yeah, you're it saying because it, it. We always get the buzzkill, no matter what the going into the season, like, no matter what the matchup we envision preseason is, no matter what year, there always seems to be whether it's an injury or just an upset in the playoffs, whatever. It's like how many years did we not get LeBron and Kobe in the finals when it looked like the Cavs and Lakers were going to coast to the finals because it's like, well, Orlando rises and upsets Cleveland or there's an injury, like whatever. Um, so yeah, obviously it's not set in stone that this will be the East final that they'll clash at some point. But if, you know, all things were equal and if we could guarantee on October 4th that there will be no significant injuries and no crazy upsets, whatever, this should be the East final. Um, and I'm already looking forward to it because, you know, we've talked so much about the wide open East the last year or so. And now it's like, OK, there there are two very clear heavyweights in this conference now. And that doesn't mean that one of the other teams can't rise up and potentially knock one off, make the East final, maybe make the finals. But again, all things being equal, these two teams should separate themselves from the pack in the East. Yeah. And I do wonder, just given the depth issues, especially with Boston that we referenced and like the injury concerns with Porzingis, like maybe it doesn't look that way in the regular season. Um, and that, I mean, that could dictate playoff matchups. Like that could determine whether we actually see these teams play in the conference finals or earlier or not at all. I will say, you know, before these trades went down, like the, the dominoes started to fall, obviously with the Dame trade before that happened, I was toying with the prediction of Cavs finish with the number one seed in the East, just because I think in terms of like their continuity, their youth, the, the likelihood of them staying healthy, all these things, it just seemed like they were better built to put up like a really strong regular season than some of the teams that they're going to be jockeying with. And now that picture is clouded for me a little bit. It's hard for me to see the Bucks not racking up like 60 regular season wins if they can stay healthy. Anyway, I, I said we didn't want to do this, but definitely a the potential for a really fascinating matchup there between Boston and Milwaukee. And like to your point about Porzingis and like the the way that the Celtics might be set up to defend the Bucks. Like I've always said like what you need to have to defend Giannis is like a guy who is strong enough and like has the footwork to ex essentially be able to like absorb his force on those drives and to keep him in front when he's trying to Euro step or spin around you just give like some kind of resistance. And then you need the like backline anchor behind that guy who can also meet him at the rim because he is inevitably going to break through the first line of defense a lot. And if you have those two things, then you're probably in, you know, we're grading on a curve, obviously when it comes to defending Giannis, but you're probably in pretty good shape. And, you know, having Dame there is going to make it more difficult for everybody around the league to defend Giannis. Like you can't really wall up against him the same way that you could in the past. 
because you've got, you know, one of the greatest shooters of all time orbiting him. Um, I'd love to be able to say like, hey, Boston could switch the Dame Giannis pick and roll because if Drew is going to be guarding Dame and he switches on to Giannis, you know, that's it's not ideal, but it's not an emergency the way that it would be for pretty much any other team switching that pick and roll. But then, oh, yeah, now you have Al Horford on the front end guarding Dame Lillard on that switch. And it's like, you know, that offense is going to have a lot of different ways to beat you. So I don't know, man. Uh, yeah, going to be really interesting. But yeah, I, I agree. Those are clearly the two heavyweights in the conference. And I wouldn't be surprised at all to see them run into each other in the conference finals. But I just uh, I don't think we can start looking ahead before the season's even begun. Agreed. I just I, I, I think what makes it fascinating for me is that like whether intentionally or not, the Celtics moves this summer help them in a matchup with Milwaukee, like seem to be like moves you make when you're trying to be buck killers. Mm-hmm. And again, that doesn't mean that like, obviously there's 28 other teams between these two. I don't think Boston just looked at it as like, okay, all we have to do this off season is how we like figure out how to beat Milwaukee. I don't think that's what they did, but I think that's maybe unintentionally what they did because to your point with adding Porzingis to that front court with Horford being the kind of primary on Giannis works as well as you can hope it can. And then adding Drew shortly after the Bucks get Dame. I just think uh, the way it worked makes the matchup even more fascinating. Yeah, and like, despite all of this, like the conversation we had on last week's episode about the Bucks and how formidable they're going to be, spending all this time talking about the Celtics and how formidable they're going to be, I think I still take Denver starting five over all of them. Well... That's like that's not a crazy statement because they deserve that respect. Mm-hmm. Like we've seen what they can do. They are literally defending champions. They have the guy that has staked his claim to being the best player alive right now. Like there, there's nothing wrong with that statement. I'm not going to sit here and argue that. Like Denver could very well win the championship again. They their starting five has like the continuity, the recent track record of success. Like there, yeah, there's no arguing that point and you know not to bring up things we talked about 80 times in three weeks during the playoffs but we also know that if they're healthy going into the playoffs with Jokic and Murray full steam ahead that team very rarely loses in the playoffs so yeah you know by no means do I think uh, this Bucks Celtics collision course in the East is going to 100% decide the title because the team that literally has the title will have something to say about it. Uh, yeah, so I want to just go back to talking about like the mechanics of this trade a bit, and we should probably talk about Portland's side of it too. But something that you said about the Celtics and the kind of financial constraints that are on the horizon, potentially, like their ability to continue upgrading this team Like, that's really fascinating to me because we mentioned, like, the picks that they still have to trade if they want to make a move. And then you mentioned how, okay, well, in terms of players, like, unless you're actually trading Jalen Brown, for instance, you know, uh, what are you actually sending out to make that deal work? And thinking about how, I mean, they're going to be a second apron team, almost certainly. So they're not going to be able to aggregate salary in a trade. And that really makes me wonder if, like, Peyton Pritchard, for example who is extension eligible right now or is going to be an RFA after this season, do they maybe sign him to like an above market deal? You know, like just give him a deal that pays him like $18 million a year as a way to say, we're not going to be able to aggregate salaries. So we just need to have this one piece who can be the matching salary to attach to all our draft capital that we have left so that we can bring in the last piece of the puzzle down the road. Like that's, I think that's going to be a really interesting thing to, to track, you know, whether it's Pritchard or I don't know, I guess because like Sam Hauser or Luke Cornett, like one of these guys who they're going to be like, okay, that's, that's the salary ballast that we're going to need that they're going to need one of those types of salaries on their books in order to swing another meaningful trade down the road. Yeah, I think that's a great point, and I think that's something that their front office, I'm sure, is thinking about, whether it's Pritchard or someone else, because, yeah, like that that's kind of what I was getting at, right? It's not that their asset capital's bare and that like they've used all their picks. No, they still have a lot of them, but 
players have to be involved in deals too. And between them running out of like good players to trade without, you know, detracting from their team and running out of salaries to move that can help you get another significant upgrade. In that sense, the cupboard is bare. But to your point, you know, you put a guy like Peyton Pritchard on one of those deals. Maybe now it's more workable. Yeah, I guess Porzingis could be the piece. I mean, that uh, that would probably make a lot of sense for him to, uh, well, we tried this, it didn't work, and yeah. now we have this. I guess, so what did they tack on with the extension they gave him? Just two he, additional years? Yeah, he's it's like he's under contract for 25, 26 uh, mm-hmm. at $30.7 Yeah, so that could be a piece where you're like, <clears throat> you know, if you're, if you're picking up a piece from like a rebuilding team, mm-hmm. they could take Porzingis on as like the salary matching in that deal, get the picks and then look to flip Porzingis somewhere yeah. else. That would actually make sense. Anyway, my, I think my point generally is like, yeah, they have sent a lot of stuff out the door to build the team that they have now, but they are not as all in to me as some of the other teams that are vying for the championship right now. They have more flexibility in terms of what they're going to be able to do over the next couple of years to augment their roster than those teams do, I think. Well, and they're not as all in as literally Milwaukee. And I think that they also, even though I think the runway has shrunk, they still I should feel a, at least a little more confident that they have a longer runway. Because if you ask me right now, like which duo has a greater chance to stay longer in their current place, I would say Tatum and Round in Boston over like Dame and Giannis in Milwaukee. And I know now we're really getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah. But again, these things matter when you're talking about like building a team. All right. So quickly, I, I think Portland did well here. And especially if you look at, you know, like now the cumulative haul from the Dame trade, we're talking about three, I guess not fully unprotected picks. The Warriors pick that they got is protected one through four. That pick had quite a journey, but three basically unprotected picks and two of them are pretty far out, which is what you want if you're getting the picks from Boston and Milwaukee. Like you want to wait those out for like push them back as far as you can. And especially the Milwaukee one, I think uh, plus those swaps have a chance to really pay off. So I think in terms of pick equity, that's good. And then the players that you get, like you have Brogdon who you can probably flip for something decent yep, and expand the hall even further. And then the other, like the players that you get that theoretically you want to keep are both centers. They're both good in different ways. You know, they're both young. You could see either or both of them, I guess, being building blocks for the Blazers or I guess trade chips potentially down the road. But like, what? how do you think that's going to play out? Are, they, are both of these guys part of the long-term plans for the Blazers? Do you think, can they play together? Uh, look, Williams' versatility defensively Mm-hmm. Makes me think he can probably play with a big like eight, like defensively. They can figure it out. They can make it work. But if you're talking about having these two young bigs that, you know, ideally you'd like to get the most out of, given that they were at least by extension part of the Dame trade, if you will, then I don't think they can play together. I, like, I don't know. Offensively, I think it's a really weird fit. And again, even like Aiton, like him being part of the Dame trade they're going to want to get the most out of him. They're going to want him to explore and experiment offensively with what he can be. And I don't know if he can do that if you've got another big in there like Williams. So I don't know. To me, the awkward fit is on the offensive end. Mm -hmm. But I also think that that's okay given where the Blazers are. Like I just mentioned experimenting. Well, you can kind of try to figure it out and there's nothing stopping you from moving one of them. If you realize, okay, this is the young big we should be going forward with. And also with Williams, it's like, again, like we talked about that injury history. I wouldn't feel comfortable if he was the young big that they were going to try to build with anyway, as uh, you know, the piece from the Dane trade. <laughs> so even though I think it's an awkward fit offensively, I'm completely fine with them roll, at least for now, rolling with both of them, figuring it out, and then making a deal again at some point in the future. Yeah, I mean, I think regardless, they have to see this season 
how it looks with those two guys playing together, right? Like this is the season where it's like no stakes, no expectations. You're actually trying to be bad. So it's a perfect opportunity to like throw those two guys on the floor together and see what it looks like. You know, if it looks totally hopeless, then yeah, you probably punt. And I'm sure Rob Williams in that situation would be the guy to go. But, you know, if if there are some flashes of, oh, this is like pretty interesting. And I think defensively it has a chance to be really interesting. Then, I don't know, maybe you'll see if it's workable long term. Because again, those guys are both pretty young. Uh, they're both under contract for, I think, what, three more years? Each uh, of them? Yeah. So, uh, you know, there's a bit of runway there to to see what you have. I don't know. Port- I think Portland's going to be an interesting team to watch this year, even though they're definitely going to be very bad. Uh, I If there's a team you're watching and being like, where is this going? What is this going to look like five years from now? I feel like that's the one that I want to watch and just see like, okay, how good is Scoot actually going to be? How good is Shaden Sharp going to be? You know, what what is the front court uh, going to look like? What's the viability of playing those bigs together? I think it's... um. That's going to be all kinds of fascinating. But I, I think they did well in this trade and the Dame trade as a whole. Like probably, honestly, probably better in total than I thought they were going to do. Is that crazy to say? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I think they did about as expected, I guess. I don't mean, I don't think they failed. Like, I, I think they did well. I think they did well. Yeah. Uh, okay, so let's take the break there. And we'll come back and we'll, I don't know, we'll talk about some other stuff. (laughs) What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Cash, we're back. We've uh, talked enough about the Drew Holiday trade, the ripple effects of that. Let's talk about some Eastern Conference teams that are maybe not feeling as rosy today as Milwaukee and Boston are. Toronto, Philly, where should we start? Let's talk about James Harden, because I don't know about you, but I am so goddamn excited to see how he tops himself this year in terms of how he's going to go about making the Sixers as uncomfortable as possible. I don't remember if it was Woj or who broke it yesterday that he yeah, is going to yeah, he, show up. And he is going to show up. To camp. up. He was not at media day, but he is going to show up to camp and make things as uncomfortable as possible for the Sixers so that they feel like they have to move him rather than waiting for a better deal or whatever. And again, given that in recent history, we know what a disgruntled James Harden looks like, whether that be when uh, social media had a field day with it looking like he had put on a fat suit because it clearly looked like he had ballooned a little bit in his last days in Houston. And then when he got to Brooklyn, looked pretty svelte pretty quickly, whether it was his the end of his time in Brooklyn. I, I'm just excited to see what he pulls out of the the magic hat this time to get himself out of Philly, you know, uh, are we gonna see some like Ben Simmons last days in Philly when he like had the phone in his pocket during camp? Like I, to me, this is the most fascinating part of the NBA preseason. Yeah, like seeing these new look contenders on the court is gonna be nice, but seeing what James Harden does in training camp is where the real drama is. That's what I want to be watching. If I could be a fly on the wall for any part of NBA training camps, it would be the first day James Harden is part of the Sixers camp. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we even teased it on, I don't know if it was last episode or a couple episodes ago, but like just the George Costanza playbook, man. Like showing up to work in the bodysuit, dragging around the 1983 Larry O'Brien trophy (laughs) behind his car. Uh soiling Wilt Chamberlain's jersey with strawberries like I'm anyway yeah I I don't know what he's gonna do or honestly how this is all gonna play out but I don't think he knows what he's gonna do I I don't yeah like I I was saying he's apparently infuriated at the Sixers for not trading him yet but like maybe he should direct his ire toward the Clippers and just be like I averaged 20 and 10 last year 20 and 11 last year led the league in assists 
You guys need a point guard badly. What are you doing? Trade for me already. Like what's, trade what's he mad at the Man. Sixers for? For, for trade... not, you know, pulling the trigger on a deal where they're going to get like Robert Covington, Marcus Morris, and a protected pick. Come on, man. Can't can't trade Terrence Mann. He's only 35 years old. <laughs> Terrence Mann. Like, I like Terrence Mann, but him being this like young piece you can't move is one of the great myths in the NBA right now. He's not Tyrese Max. And yet it persists. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I've I've talked enough about the Terrence Mann thing and how I think the Clippers are getting way too precious about frankly, a non-prospect. Again, a player I really like, but he is 27 and a low usage guard slash wing who averages like eight points a game. Like, come on, you're, you're a win now team. You've got this small window where PG and Kawhi are still going to be in their primes. And you have a guy out there who gives you pretty much exactly what you need and wants to be Just, nowhere else, but your team. Yeah. It's insane. Um, but I don't know. I mean, like, I guess they feel like they have the leverage in this situation. Philadelphia is the team that's over a barrel and, Maybe they're just kicking back, like, waiting to see. Let's see how uncomfortable James Harden can make Daryl Morey, and maybe we can actually get him without putting Terrence Mann on the table. I, I don't know. but I'd love, I'd love to think that uh, Harden and Lawrence Frank are somehow in communication, and it's like Harden checking in, like, oh, what? So what do you guys, uh, what was the latest trade talks? What were the latest trade talks between you and, and Daryl? And, like, Lawrence Frank tells them, and Harden's like, ah, it's – Still going to leave us kind of thin uh, in LA. All right, hold on. Wait, wait till you see what I got tomorrow. At tra- and then he like, you know, does whatever he does, calls back Lawrence Frank. What about now? What's the offer now? Uh, I, I, I feel bad for Joel Embiid, man. I do. I know like, whatever. You can say that he has played his part in the Sixers' disappointments over the last few years, but like, he doesn't deserve to have to put up with all this again. I just... I don't know, man. I feel I feel like it's a matter of time before that trade request is coming down the oh, line. It yeah. just feels like that's where this is headed. I think the whole league agrees with you. All right. So is that, you know, the, the these other teams like the the Knicks, the Raptors, like are they they're they're keeping their powder dry for the inevitable Joel Embiid trade request? Is that what we're seeing happen? Yeah, and I think it doesn't like Joel Embiid and who and or whichever other disgruntled superstar will surely emerge at some point this season because it's the NBA and that will happen. Like, it could be someone we're not even thinking of, right? Like, the obvious ones are the obvious ones. Like, like everyone could see Dame eventually doing it or Embiid now or, you know, for years, people have been waiting for Carl Anthony Towns to shake free. Like, the obvious ones will always be there, but there's always like a kind of... a unpredictable one that comes out of nowhere too even if it's not like the top top tier mvp level superstar but like a game-changing star nonetheless will want out at some point this season or next summer and yeah all those teams are maybe holding for that but you know we like talk about toronto and new york for me the more fascinating ones are still the ones like oklahoma city and utah and teams like that where it's like in the Thunder's case, especially because they are much closer to ready to win right now, based on just how good Shea is and what they're building there. That's the team where it's like, oh, like Toronto, New York. Yeah, you guys have some nice packages. Those are really cute. But if we actually want to win any of these sweepstakes, we're gonna. And if they throw that kind of like trade capital muscle around at the right time, that could truly shake up the league. So, you know, even Utah. Not quite, I was going to say not quite the same asset capital as Oklahoma City, but pretty damn close after trading Mitchell and Gobert last year. Like Utah had that really fun season last year. If Markkanen is anything close to what he was last year, if that's just who he is now, they've got one foundational star already there, probably two with Walker Kessler. Like if they're still frisky. You're pining for a Kessler Embiid front court? No, I'm not saying Embiid. I'm saying in general, one of these, one of these like disgruntled superstars that asks out that we can't even foresee. Like Utah gets in the mix, that could shake up the league. Like the, those two teams, San Antonio's treasure trove of assets. You know, depending on how quickly Wemby um, returns them to competitiveness, there are teams out there that can shake up the league with trades like that for disgruntled stars we don't even know exist. Yeah, that could very quickly bury the offers of teams like Toronto and New York. 
especially in the case of the Raptors, if Scotty Barnes isn't on the table, because that's the great equalizer for the Raptors in the talks. It's like if Barnes is on well, the table for now, for right. now, if he no, has no. another season like he had last year, then that's not much of an equalizer at all. I understand, but I'm just saying in general, like that's their right now. That's their equalizer, but. If they don't want to put him on the table, for like, sure, if he if he doesn't have a great season and they want to put him on the table, then he's not going to have the same value anyway. And if they don't want to put him on the table, like he's got no trade value at all. So, yeah, you want? I guess that's a good segue to uh, talking about the new look kind of Raptors. Are they the new look Raptors? This is the big question I have. No, that's why I said. Because okay, no. so we we were both there on media day. I think we can both agree that the vibes were a little off. Right, everything was a, a tad tense and just kind of weird. And I think there's actually a pretty simple explanation for all of this, which is that Masai Ujiri goes up there and he has to find a way to answer for what was a disappointing season last year in which the roster he put together had clear limitations and frankly didn't make a ton of sense. But he couldn't do that, I don't think, and be honest about it without setting people's expectations extremely low for an upcoming season in which the team is going to have all of those same limitations and then some because they just lost basically the only guy on their roster who can handle the ball and shoot off of the dribble. That's why I think he goes up there and starts talking about, oh, like the team was selfish last year. This year, it's going to be a completely different story. We're turning the page. The culture is going to be different. The play style is going to be different. The vibes are going to be different because that's a way to be like, no, last year was last year. This year is something entirely new when in reality, I think in a lot of ways, this year is going to be more of the same. And I'm sitting there thinking like, do good vibes beget winning or does winning beget good vibes? Because I don't think the way the Raptors are set up right now looks like a team that is positioned to have good vibes because I don't think they're going to win a ton of games. They've got three of their top six rotation players on expiring contracts and not necessarily knowing where they stand with the franchise, including the team's best player, a two-time All-NBAer who hasn't been extended yet. And then again, you have the team president up there saying, well, yeah, you know, like maybe we'll extend Pascal, but he didn't play the right way last year and let's see how it looks this year playing the right way. And like, you know, the new coach's system, it's all just pretty mystifying, but also it's like, if everyone was just up there being honest, I think they would say the team isn't built all that well. And that's really what all these issues are stemming from. What do you think? Agreed. And I think a big part of that, a big part of why the vibes are weird that day, a big part of why the vibes will probably be weird this season is that this is very much a stopgap team. And when I say that, I mean that I think the players, given the trade rumors the last couple of years, given the like, will they, won't they, as sellers, will they, won't they, KD last summer, will they, won't they, Dane this year, the guys on now expiring contracts, you add it all up. And the fact that, you know, it's kind of out there that they want to build on the Barnes time, or at least whether they want to build on the Barnes timeline or not, they want Barnes to be part of that, like a big part of it the next competitive team, like you start adding all this stuff up and the players are smart enough to realize like we're here right now and this is the team we have. But like this year, I don't want to say this year means nothing, but like this particular team is not what the front office wants. It's, it's a stopgap team. This is not the kind of team where you come to training camp and you say, all right, this is the roster we have and we're going to make this work this season and let's see what we can do. It, It, to me, it seems like the kind of team where it's like, well, this, I guess this is where we're going to have probably opening day, but I don't really know how much we're wanted here. Like, I don't really know how much of this team is what the front office wants. I don't even know if this team is what the new coach wants. Like, I guess we're just kind of in a wait and see. This is not what the team's going to look like maybe by the end of the season. Definitely not next year. You know, it's just this very weird, like, thing. And... Again, I think that players are smart enough to recognize that. And so, yeah, it creates this weird environment. And they've arrived there because they were not decisive enough at last year's trade deadline. Because they probably have overvalued their own players. 
and they're just in this weird spot. And like the Siakam thing is the perfect example. I know like people that have been listening to our show, you know, for a while, all season, since the summer, since the end of last season, have probably heard me talk about this with Siakam a bunch. And they heard me talk about it, especially around the time Beal was traded. And I wrote about it at the time. But like the Siakam situation to me, the reason it makes so little sense is because like this is not the case of a guy had he made an All-NBA team that would now be super max eligible. And then you can, you know, if you're the Raptors, you'd be like, look, like we really love Pascal Siakam, but he we don't think he's that level of player and we think it'll hamstring us to give him that contract. He did not make All-NBA again. He is not super max eligible. The extension he is eligible for is much more in line with his actual on-court value. And so he should have that extension on the table extension that everyone has reported he would take. And I think he would take. So it's also not an issue of like, Oh, well we, you know, we actually think his extension that he's eligible for is in line with his value, but we're not even going to put it out there because we know he's going to say, no, he's hoping to get the super max next year. Like, no, you put it out there. He's going to take it. It's in line with his value. As I've said all year, the fact that they have not tabled that extension to me means they are not convinced he's even worth that. And if they are not convinced he's even worth that, and, you know, last year probably indicated any hopes of him and Barnes winning on the same timeline is wishful thinking, then why have you not moved him to get the best possible return for him before his actual contract season, contract year starts? So the Siakam thing, like, again, I just, I still don't understand. It's like, if you haven't extended him, you're indicating he's probably not, you don't even think he's worth that, but you haven't traded him for what, I don't know what, you don't think the offers are good enough, you're hopeful that the season starts and you think then things are going well enough where he can win on the same timelines as Barnes, but then at the same time, if that happens, if the season starts and for whatever reason, you know, it's magic and Siakam's playing out of his mind and you think, oh, you know what, this could actually work on Barnes's timeline, but then Siakam probably says, uh, now I think I might be in line for all NBA again. Nah, I'll hold off to the offseason to sign that. It's like you, you've they've put themselves in such a weird spot that with OG's contract status hanging in the air, and he you know obviously doesn't even want the extension yet because he can make more money next year. They like bring back Gary Trent on an expiring deal again. They've got a new coach trying to like come up with a new system, which you know I'm fine with that part, but it's just it, there are too many moving parts here. And a direction was not chosen. They're very much in limbo. One of the things I said, uh, I can't remember if I wrote about it. I know I put it in, a, in an unfiltered video for the Score YouTube page around the deadline last year when I was imploring the Raptors to be sellers at the deadline was that if they weren't going to be sellers and they wanted to kind of go with the more all-in win-now move to set themselves up for this year because they had Siakam and at the time still had Fred and maybe we're going to resign him or whatever. I said that would be like even if people thought that was short-sighted, that would still be more defensible than doing kind of nothing or making like a, a half-measure type move, which is what I think they made for the Pirtle deal. And I also said like if they if they sell or if they buy, I can get behind it and it makes sense. But if they continue to kind of tread water in the middle and take these half-measures, they're going to be in the exact same spot next year and here we are. And we're probably going to be talking about this again when the trade deadline rolls around. So they backed themselves into a corner, man. And... uh I don't really see a way out without things getting real awkward this year. They're already awkward. Yeah. And not to relitigate this, but the the corner that they were backed into, they kind of had a get out of jail free card and they turned it down. Like this is all, these are all the reasons that I thought the Dame trade made all the sense in the world. It's like retroactively, everything you did at last year's trade deadline makes a whole lot more sense now. Right. Cause we were like, man, you probably should have moved on OG when he was at the peak of his value rather than, you know, like going into the season now with him on an expiring contract and now his value is diminished. And if he, even if you do re-sign him and things don't go well and you feel like you need to trade him down the road, well, you're not gonna be able to get back for him what you would have gotten when you traded him on a, you know, an under market deal. But hey, good thing you held on to him because now he's the centerpiece of a trade that got you Dane Lillard. You know, or, you know, if in, in our framework for the deal, Scotty Barnes was the guy going out. Now he's a super important piece of a team being led by Damian Lillard. And you worry a little bit less about his free agency because you feel comfortable overpaying him for a contending team. You know, either that decision, which is going to be complicated and fraught in a lot of ways, is like taken off of your plate. Or 
it is just simplified for you because the timeline is clarified and the team is contending. Like, and, and like the same thing with Siakam. It's like, if you had gotten Dame, okay, we're like, clearly we're extending Pascal now because we have, you know, one of the better duos in the NBA. Like, I think you could have convinced yourself you had the best duo in the Eastern Conference if Dame hadn't gone to Milwaukee, if he was in Toronto instead. So I just don't really understand why, you know, Masai said on that media day, it's like, we're always looking for opportunities to make this team better. And when an opportunity presents itself, it's the right guy, the right trade to make at the right time, then we'll pull the trigger on that. And I just don't see how this didn't meet that criteria. But whatever, we've talked about that that possibility enough. I just think, you know, when I think about it, this is going to sound weird, but it feels very risky to me. And the reason I think that sounds weird is like we usually conceptualize risk as like something that you do rather than something that you don't do. Making the big move feels like the risky thing and doing nothing feels like the conservative thing. But I think betting on this version of the team betting on there being a path for this team that will be better than the path that you could have gone down with Dame feels like a very risky proposition, especially with the free agency hovering over, you know, at least, you know, Gary is what Gary is. Like he's actually very important to this version of the team because he's like the only guy on the team that can shoot. But it's really more about Pascal and OG and the decisions that you as the team have to make, but also the decisions that they're going to make because now you're, you're putting yourself in a situation where this is actually not entirely within your control. Like you, you are opening yourself up to the possibility that one or both of those guys is just going to choose to leave. That's what happened with Fred last year. And you can go into the season with all the confidence in the world that you're going to be able to resign these guys if you decide that you want to, but you just don't know. And to me, that's not worth the risk. It's not worth it for some wait and see shit. You know, like you're putting yourself in a situation where season starts, let's say it doesn't go great. Let's say you start off like three and eight or something. Vibes are still bad. And suddenly Pascal's like, yeah, you know, you didn't give me the extension that pretty much any other team in the league would have given its best player. And I don't really feel appreciated or valued by this organization. And also we're not good and we're not going anywhere. So I'd like you to trade me. And now you're like, you really have no leverage because everyone else in the league knows that you have to trade Pascal. And he's got a few months left on his contract and you're you're just not going to be able to get good value in return for him. As opposed to like, just extend him now. Like you said, this this non-supermax extension is I think very much in line with his value. I think there are like 20 plus teams in the league that would happily give Pascal that deal if it was cap compliant, you know? And so to say that like you have to wait and see before signing him to that, as opposed to just signing him to that deal and then figuring the rest out later, like if you feel like you have to trade him later, he's going to have more value on a deal that runs four or five more years than he is on one that's expiring. And you saw that this summer with these reports that like part of the reason that the trade market for Pascal was dampened was that teams weren't sure that he was going to sign an extension there. You can take care of that problem by signing him to that extension yourself. Yep. What are we doing here, Cash? I don't know. I don't know if they know what they're doing here anymore. I don't know. It's strange. It's really strange. It's, it's really strange, man. And like, look, I'm not, I'm not an NBA executive. I don't know what kind of conversations are happening behind the scenes. I am not as good at my job and never will be as good at my job as Masai Ujiri is at his. I give him some benefit of the doubt because of what he's been able to accomplish as a team builder in the past. But it's just very hard for me to see a coherent roadmap here. And so, again, I've said this before. Maybe that's a failure of imagination on my part. And maybe the better alternative path does appear down the road. Maybe it is a trade for Joel Embiid or a different younger star that makes more sense with this team. Maybe it is internal development. Scotty Barnes really is that dude. And keeping Pascal and OG surrounding him is going to lead to great bountiful things for this team and like a eight-year window of contention. Like maybe that'll happen and I'll eat my words, you know. I'll come on here and I'll apologize for not seeing the vision. I'm just saying right now, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I'm not seeing it. 
Yeah, I don't know how anyone can. Oh boy. All right. Yeah. Sorry. I, I didn't mean to get like that fired up, but I've just, no, I mean, it, it's, it's been a, it's, it's been a weird summer for the Raptors. And like, so I'll be upfront. That was the first Raptors media day that I've actually in, attended in person, but I've been around the team for a while covering the NBA full-time with credentials, watched Raptors media days in the past, like pretty much since Masai took over the atmosphere the feelings of optimism, the vibes at media day are almost always super positive. Uh, maybe the one, I mean, no, no, like even, even the Tampa season, they wind up with Scotty Barnes, right? Yeah. And then it's like, you can really sell this like new version of the Raptors team where, okay, Kyle Lowry's gone. We've gotten younger. It's like Fred and Pascal's team now. We maybe aren't going to like be a championship contender, but we're moving in a different direction. You could sell that. And like, this is really the first time in the Masai Ujiri era where I just felt like it was everybody kind of looking around and like going through the motions, saying what they're supposed to say, but not really knowing or feeling confident that it was going in a positive direction. The closest thing I think that compares is his first training camp, first media day as Raptors exec or as Raptors president which was the beginning of the 2013-14 season. But still, to your point, the optimism there was that it was Masai's first season charge and things were going to change and they were going to start fresh. But from a team perspective, that media day had similarly weird vibes because the players that day were being asked questions about whether they, you know, are listening to the rumors about how the team's going to want to tank for Andrew Wiggins and this and that. And so... Like people thought Lowry was unhappy to be there going into his, uh, I think, second season with the Raptors or third season, whatever. Yeah, second season with the Raptors. Like that year, there was a, a similarly weird vibe when it came to the players. But again, there was this optimism of like, yeah, well, no offense, but who cares what these guys think because Masai Ujiri is here now and he's going to turn this thing around, which to his credit, he did. Just not the way everyone thought he would. Now there's that similar vibe when it comes to the players, but also... Ujiri's part of that weird vibe because he was defensive more than hopeful when he spoke. Yeah. And like, I mean, just to, again, like I, I said this earlier, I said it on Twitter, but to me, what was going on that entire media day was like almost every question asked was some variation of, hey, this team's like kind of weird. Doesn't seem like it's optimally built. Like, how's that going to work? Yeah, How's it going to work now? What's it going to look like in the future? And it's really hard to answer that without just throwing somebody in the organization under the bus. Now, I do feel like maybe if you want to read between the lines, you could say that there was like some throwing of some people under the bus that are no longer with the organization. But whether it was like the selfishness talk that I think was a bit of a deflect or whether it was like, you know, Darko up there. And he was the one guy who I would say was expressing some optimism and seemed genuinely excited to coach this team and give it a new identity. But um, our colleague, Louis Zatzman, asked Darko, it's like, okay, you have all these offensive principles. You want to have these cuts. You want to run this 0.5 offense. But what does that amount to if nobody is respecting the shooters you have on the floor? They're just packing the paint and the cuts aren't going anywhere because there's always somebody to meet a cutter in the lane. And it, like that's sort of what it boils down to at the end of the day. And like he said some variation of, well, you know, if we get open shots, we're going to have to take them and we're going to have to make them. And then I think it was actually a different question about Pascal being double teamed a ton last year. And like, how do you deal with that? And he's like, well, you know, like if, if you draw two to the ball, like you have to, you have to pass. That's another thing where it's like, yeah, passing out of double teams wasn't the problem for Pascal Siakam or the Raptors last season. He's a really good passer. Like at the power forward position, he's like top five passer in basketball. Does a really good job passing out of double teams. The problem is what happened after he passed out mm -hmm. of double teams. And like you look at this roster and you wonder how that's not going to be a problem again. So this is where I talk about like, you know, if, if you gave everybody truth serum and they're answering these questions, honestly, it's like, yeah, well, actually the issue is we don't really have a great way to punish double teams. And Actually, my offensive philosophy isn't going to work all that well with this group of players. And I would prefer for the roster construction to look a little bit different than it looks right now. But nobody's going to be up there saying that. So we get all this weirdness about selfishness and needing to be better about moving the ball and stuff that doesn't actually address the root of the problem. Yeah. And yet, when Masai Ujiri 
although with much less fervor in his voice, says, we will win again in Toronto. <laughs> For some dumb reason, I still believe it. Um, oh, yeah. man. All right. That, that feels like a good place to end, I guess. Uh, so there you go. Raptors are heading out for their training camp in BC. Joel Embiid. What, what, what was it that he tweeted? That was a fun offseason, I think yeah, he said. Which it was. I mean, he's just being honest. You know? <laughs> uh, just kind of sad. The, the paths that those teams have taken since meeting in that epic 2019 Easter Conference semifinal. Yeah. Hasn't uh, hasn't gone especially great for either of them, but the Nick Nurse Bowl is going to be a bowl of sadness. Oh my God, yeah. But Adrian Griffin over in Milwaukee just laughing his ass off. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. Cash. We will be back next week to hopefully, unless some more craziness happens between now and then, we can actually proceed with our plan to start rolling out some of our uh, our annual off season episodes where we're talking about. Swing players, breakout players, bold predictions, all that good stuff. Um, but for now, we're going to leave all this here. I don't know if you had a shout out that you wanted to get to, but I actually did. And for, for our listeners, anyone who listens to our podcast on Spotify, we've recently opened it up to comments and feedback. So this is, I'm sorry, it's like been in the in the bank for a while because I didn't know how to actually check to find these comments, but I recently did. So uh, I want to shout out Marcin Zieba. I, I hope that I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, but he commented on one of our episodes from, I think, three months back, saying that it was a great episode as always. And greetings from Poland. So there you go. Good to know that we have a Poland listenership. I guess knowing that I don't know. Maybe we'll do our best to, to cater to that demographic in the future. Keep talking about those Gortat screens for as long as we can. But thank you, Marcin. And uh, we hope you'll keep listening from Poland. Maybe it is Gortat. <laughs> there you go. Um, all right. So we're going to leave all that there. Uh, we're going to come back next week with some more season preview content. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, a reminder, now we can include you know reaching out on Spotify to the list of ways to reach us if you want to shout out on a future episode. But uh, if not, you can hit us on Twitter. I'm at Joey underscore W. Cash is at Joseph Cacharo. Or you can email us joseph.cacharo at the score.com or joe.wolfond at the score.com. Let us know what you think about the show, what you like, what you don't like, where you're listening from, how long you've been listening for, any of that. And we will be sure to get you a shout out on a future episode. Until that future episode... For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon, Pound the Rock. Mm-hmm.